You're listening to That'll Preach. We have another interview for you guys today. Uh, Excited for this one. We have with us uh, Dr. Jonathan Pennington. He's a professor of New Testament interpretation at Southern Seminary. He's also an associate pastor at Sojourn East Church in Louisville. He's one of the teaching pastors there. I had the privilege of hearing him speak at the Harbor Network Conference. And uh, really glad to have you on, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, as I mentioned, the first time I encountered uh, your work was when I heard you speak at uh, the Harbor Network Conference. And uh, I remember I had like two, my my, my impressions were one, I was like, wow, this is really deep stuff. And then I also thought, this guy's got a really deep voice too. (laughs) I was like, man, he's got a great voice, you know? Face for radio, uh, as I always say, face for radio. Yeah, yeah, face for radio, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But no, it was really, I mean, and you were talking about the incarnation. And I remember one of your lines, I don't, it was something like, you're trying to make the point about the physicality of the incarnation. And you had said that the word becoming flesh is really like, it's like the word became like meat, like something very. uh, Shocking and tangible. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so I really, uh, that really was stimulating a lot of thought for me. And uh, you also had another uh, thing that you mentioned where you had talked about at Sojourn East um, wanting to regularly preach through and teach through the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And that was really good to hear for me. I mean, just thinking through that. And uh, our church right now is going through the book of Matthew. Oh, great. And it's through that that, uh, you know, I had to preach on the Beatitudes. And then that's how I encountered your book on the Sermon of the Mount. And I'm reading it and I'm like, I noticed that it was it was not like a standard commentary. It was very holistic. Mm. And I felt like you were drawing on tradition, systematics, but also the exegesis, the Greek and the language. But you also applied it in a very, I think, profound way. And I'm, as I'm, through, I'm reading it, I'm like, man, this is really helpful stuff. And then when you had told me about Come and See, I was like, this book is kind of like going into the lab with you mm-hmm. and seeing how the, the the foundational levels of how you kind of come to these, you know, conclusions or how you read these texts in a really profitable way. Um, so I did want to talk about that. Uh, your book, Come and See, The Journey of Knowing God Through Scripture, which is a, mm-hmm. which is a really great title. Um, why did you call this book Come and See? I'm very curious about that title. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. Thanks for all that. Um, yeah, it's, and that's just comment. That's a, a helpful uh, insight. I hadn't really thought about come and see in connection to the commentary, the Sermon on Mountain Human Flourishing, but it's all, I guess, coming from me. And so it makes sense in the sense that there is a wholeness and organic to it, a grant or, or organic, whatever the uh, word organicness. I don't know. If yeah, that's yeah, a word, yeah. But, um, but yeah, just in the sense of, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that is what I try to do in the commentary. It, it is provide both a, inf- an informational kind of reading, as we'll talk about here in a moment, what's going on in Come and See, but also sensitive to theology and sensitive to what it really means in our lives. Yeah, I mean, yeah. all three of those aspects. So, yeah, thanks for that comment. Um, yeah, why did I call the book Come and See? Well, um, you know, that's a phrase that actually appears quite a bit in the Bible or some variation on it. Uh, in some really powerful and personally um, deep verses, like, um, you know, come and 
taste and see that the Lord is is good. You know, that's like a precious kind of idea that I find myself thinking about a lot and, and saying. Um, but more particularly in the Gospel of John, the first chapter, um, which we were talking about at the Harbor Network, that was what I was talking about a lot. This is something that everybody keeps saying to each other, uh, that people that are following Jesus say to each other, Jesus says it to people. And it just has really struck me that it is not only an invitation of the, the people are giving to each other to follow Jesus in the first couple of chapters of John, it's simultaneously an invitation to us. Like that when I think the God, the author, uh, John, is saying, as we begin to read this book, come and see, come and see, come and, and pay attention to what's going on and and start to follow and and that's really one of the most unexpected things if you start thinking about that phrase it's not see and come right in the sense that a lot of times we tend to think of it as well once i apprehend the truth or see what is true uh then i will follow and there's a sense in which of course that's true but it's also true in maybe a more mysterious and profound way that we actually only come to understand as we follow. So in other words, the seeing, the understanding is a function of the following. Now, you know, it all kind of depends on what we're talking about. If you're talking about in a purely systematic theology sense of like, can you follow Jesus before you're born again? No, you can't. But when you're talking about kind of the, the more regular life of like, how do we come to understand something? It actually comes about by starting to do it. Right. And so I think this come and see idea is is an invitation from God to us to begin to follow. And in this case, when we're talking about the Bible, to begin to read it, to begin to study it. You don't have to understand everything. You don't have to have great knowledge. You don't have to go to seminary. You just start reading and start thinking and start praying and see what will happen, you know, when we read the Bible. And so that's kind of what's behind uh, the idea of the title anyways. That's a great insight. I mean, I think about oftentimes if you kind of advance in your hermeneutics or your understanding of uh, of the text and all these things, you forget that you didn't you didn't kind of know what the Bible was and then start reading it. Mm -hmm. You usually just you know you start off. Maybe you hear your parents are just reading the Bible to you at home, or you go to church, you just hear it read, and it's sort of like a shoe that you grow into. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I think about that now. I think, you know, people will kind of make fun of different Bible study things of like you're reading and you're just like, what does it mean for me? And, and you know, there's sermons saying that's too much eisegesis. And I think there's a danger there. But sometimes it's also like, well, where's that person in their walk? If, if that's just getting them to open the Bible and mm -hmm. start, you know, that's how we all kind of started and just kind of letting them kind of dip their toe in that's and right. start to get acquainted with the text. Yeah, and if you you know, and and if you think about it, I mean, we this might take us too far, but it it does appear in the book at various points, kind of covertly, and that is the the I really love these questions about what's called epistemology or how do we know things, like how yeah. do we really know things, and so this appears in the books is, and we'll come back to this, I guess, but these little side trips are little explorations of like what's really going on when we come to know something, and a lot of times it involves using our bodies, you know, and, and again, starting to do something or practice something in a certain way and recognizing that, you know, whether it's like how to drive, how to drive is a great example of this. Like you can be in a car, you can watch people 
drive cars as most kids do when they're in the car. And then you could take the driver's ed test, but you can't, I mean, you could read them in the book part of it, you know, all the laws of stop signs, et cetera, but you don't really know how to drive until you do it for a while and, and make some mistakes and, and hopefully not, you know, cause your parents too much insurance premiums. And, but you, you, you know, you just have to do it. And it turns out most knowing is actually like that, if not all knowing. And a big part of what happens in the modern turn and modernism in the 18th and 19th centuries down to today is that we adopted a totally opposite view of that, which is partially true, but not the whole truth. And that is that we, um, you know, that, that using our bodies and, and doing things isn't how knowing occurs, that knowing starts. And, and it's just not true. I mean, most of the things we know, we know through experience, right? So that's, you know, kind of what's behind the book, that title, and also those little side trips I have in the book about interesting thoughts about knowing. Well, those side trips are very interesting. I mean, you, you, again, the subtitle, The Journey of Knowing God, and then and then sort of the, the framework of your book is this road trip that you mm-hmm. take with Ingrid, Tom and Taylor. Now, by Tom, you mean Tom Schreiner, I'm sure. Tom Schreiner's Tom. Who's Ingrid and Taylor? I don't know who you these know, people are. It's so funny. I've been doing a lot of interviews on the book, and it just comes up every time, completely understandably. Like, who are these people or whatever? Well, the third one is very consciously, um, you know, my homage to uh, Taylor Swift. The other two, there is no rhyme or reason to them other than the, the alliteration that I matches with informational and T with theological. We'll come back to that in a moment. And so I'm like kicking myself. Like I should have like had a, I should have thought through this more and I, in the terms of the actual names and I should have like had this perfect answer about why these people represent that. And, uh, so I don't know. So the first, I've always just kind of liked the name Ingrid. It's not a name you hear very often and it goes with informational. Tom, I don't know why I chose that. I don't even really like that name. Sorry for all the Toms listening. I don't mean I dislike it, but it's not, it's not one of my favorite names. And Tom Schreiner comes to mind for me, but he is not in that category. Like Tom would be in the informational kind of reading. Like he, he's a dear colleague and I love him, but he doesn't really do a theological reading. Like I'm saying, he does the informational. So I just blew it totally. I mean, still well, in my book, mind. But, uh, yeah, yeah. In my uh, mind. It's you, Taylor Swift, and Tom Schreiner, in a and car this old German random. woman named Ingrid, who's very grumpy. Hey, we'll or something. go with that. That's, so that, that's, that's my that's my mental landscape for this. But let's just edit out all that earlier stuff, and that's what it is. It's yeah, me, yeah, old exactly. Mother, Tom Schreiner, and Taylor Swift on a road trip, go. which I, would be uh, very interesting. That would be a great road trip. That would be a great road trip. <laughs> um, but this this road trip analogy is very interesting. Each one of them represents a, a particular approach um, or a way of reading uh, the text. And uh, I, I kind of like that, even in the way that you structured the book, it's inviting, it, you're, you're almost saying to the, the reader, come and see, jump, jump in this car with us, That's right. we're going to be driving, and as we drive, you're going to see how these kind of concepts unfold. And um, Well, yeah, so kind of we kind of got ahead of ourselves and jumped yeah. around, it's my fault, like we didn't even really explain what we're talking about with all these yeah, people, yeah, yeah. but yeah, the idea of the book is that um, our life so the, the metaphor, the image of a journey is one that, of course, is used all throughout the Bible. Sure. Most religions use it, all kinds of parts of our lives. It's a really helpful metaphor to think of aspects of our lives as a journey yeah. and in our lives themselves. And so I was actually kind of hesitant to use it as a metaphor because it's used so often. But as I kept kind of spent years thinking about it and kind of trying out different versions, I realized, you know, it's just a really powerful metaphor. And I think if we think about our lives as a lifelong journey of knowing God, what role does the Bible play in that? 
um, is the question that was kind of driving this and how do we think about it? And so how I worked it out is it's not just a journey, it's a road trip with three friends. So you have three friends that are very different people. Um, they have their own personalities, their own kind of things they're interested in. Um, but they're friends. They love each other and they are on this long road trip. And the road trip is so long that not just one person can drive. It, it, each person needs to take a turn driving. And when they drive, um, whoever's in charge of the, you know, whoever's driving gets to be in charge of the podcast and the music and whatever you're listening to. So that's the idea. And and then what that represents is the fact that really there are many different ways to read the Bible um, that have validity to them and have uh, strength. Um, and I identify these three and say that these are friends that don't ask the same questions. They do ask a little bit different questions when they're reading the Bible, but they all ask questions that are really crucial to an excellent reading, to a, to a reading that's going to get us over the course of our lifetimes to um, a better relationship with God. So Ingrid represents an informational reading. Again, Tom, a theological reading, and Taylor, a transformational. And maybe we want to jump into each of those a little bit, but that's the big idea of the book. Well, let's let's talk about uh, Ingrid. Uh, you, you, you begin talking about, as you mentioned, the informational approach to scripture. And I think you can just even tell from the title, it's you're talking about trying to understand the propositions and the words mm -hmm. and getting the information in. Um, and, and maybe for the that might, and I guess for each one of these, I think depending upon what theological stream you're in, what tradition you're in, one might take more of a foreground in terms of practices mm -hmm. of reading scripture. Right. Um, but how would you describe the informational approach mm -hmm. to scripture? Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, you get a good description of it. I, th I think I like to say that, you know, the Bible is other than us. Um, we believe that it is God, the record of God speaking and the sense or the testimony to what God has said and done. And so that means, you know, when we read the Bible, while we do read it very personally, often, and we should very devotionally, um, we don't read it just to kind of find out or to make it say what we want to say. We are trying to hear from God. We're trying to hear an other. And so the otherness of it means that we need help because this, it's, it's very easy to just kind of assume we know what it means and also to make it mean whatever we want it to mean. But it's a it's a document that was written between two and three thousand years ago in very different languages and very different cultures than our own. That doesn't mean that God doesn't speak through us through our English translations. He certainly does. But it does mean that the best readings are going to just intentionally seek to grow in some of the knowledge of of what that information meant so that we can, you know, read it the best. And so I talk about like literature in the sense of like, how do you think about a poem and like, how does a poem work? And how do you think about it structurally? Or you think about cultural and historical backgrounds, like what did this phrase mean for them? And how did they think about, you know, this situation of honor and shame or, um, you know, the relationship of parents and children or whatever it is, those things are culturally bound a lot of times. And then there's this big idea that we talk about a lot in the kind of seminary setting, which is genre, was just a fancy word for the type of literature. So we recognize that when you read a proverb, that's different than reading like a letter, which is different than reading like the book of Revelation, which is different than reading like a story. There are certain kind of tools and skills and expectations 
um, that we can have when we, and we should have when we read those different types of literature. So there's other things in that chapter, but that's kind of the big idea is that we're trying to, you know, hear God speak and clear away the problems that we have. It's not that God has trouble speaking, but that we have, um, we have things that block us from hearing that are a lot of times just lack of information that will really help us well. That's the idea. As I was reading that chapter, I mean, you talk about the different genres, and I think for me, one of the most difficult ones to get is the poetic kind of literature that you find in like the wisdom literature. I mean, I think it's kind of a trope, if, you know, reform guys, it's like, Paul, you know, like, <laughs> we really just need Paul, you know, um, but poetry in the Bible, like, I, I think there's a sense in which when people talk about poetry now, it's kind of fluffy and you're not really saying anything. And it's just sort of maybe even self self-indulgent when people think about being poetic today, artistic with those substance, <laughs> but that's not what's going on. You're a good modernist. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. uh, yeah. You're right. I mean, poetry is not something that's part of most of our lives. It's actually a decent part of my life. I read a lot of poetry and like it, although it actually is part of all of our lives because we all like music. And the today's poets are largely, you know, songwriters that is in music that has lyrics. And so we we still have plenty of poetry in our lives. It's not always maybe super sophisticated, um, but we, we do have it in our lives. Um, and yeah, it's a, you know, there's some skills. You could just get better at reading it. I, I um, have been uh, leading and part of leading a, a writing group for we're about to start our seventh year of meeting every two weeks. Wow. And it is, you know, a closed group of the same people. And we've so, you know, just been through a lot of wonderful things together, sharing each other. Everybody's published authors in various fields. But a couple of the guys in there are published poets. I mean, they're like legit poets who have published books of poetry. And so over the years, I've really grown in my understanding of like what a poem is, what makes a poem good, but also how to read them. Because I'm with these guys who are, um, you know, we're reading their poems and they're sharing their poems with us in draft form and everything. And so there are some skills, you know, to kind of things to learn to pay attention to. But it's not impossible. It's not overwhelming. Um, and in fact, almost everything in that in that informational, if not everything in that informational section is really just learning to pay attention. I think attention is the kind of a great word to think about. It's just concentrating, slowing down, putting your phone down. And just asking questions like, oh, that what why are those words repeated? Or or why, you know, why does that line sound different than this line? Or, you know, just just asking questions, just paying attention. You don't have to have a PhD in poetry to be to read poetry, you know. Um, it's just learning to slow down. Well, one of the things that I started to see and notice is when you publicly read scripture, especially the poetic portions, it it becomes a new experience for you. Like I think about when you read out loud a song and you think about intonation and you think about the pacing of how you speak suddenly. It, I mean, I would imagine you mentioned songwriting. I'd imagine nobody just like looks at lyrics. You know, I mean, there, there's a sense in which there's something to be performed. And I, I remember some of my friends who mm -hmm. enjoyed poetry, like, well, if you have a hard time getting into it, try reading it out loud mm -hmm. and slowing yourself mm -hmm. down. And uh, and there's something to that of, of slowing down, noticing those things. And we probably you're right. We probably do do that already with with music. I mean, we're already kind of now the, you know, you can 
talk about the quality of the poetry. Right, but right, right. Maybe varies. it's not so foreign. Yeah, maybe it's not so foreign to us. I mean, I think, you know, just I we should probably move on. But the side note on that is that I have found with if I've tried to memorize a poem, yeah, which I haven't done a ton of, but I've done some. I, I very distinctly remember, for example, um, do not go gently into that good night. Yeah. If you know that poem, it's yeah. a great one. Like I had heard it, read it, knew there was something I liked about it. Wasn't sure what, but it wasn't until I actually memorized it hmm. that I actually understood what it was saying because you had to start like really paying attention. Like, cause to memorize something you're looking for like hooks, you're looking for like repetitions, you're looking for things and it's like, I had read this poem a million times. It's like, once I memorized, I was like, that's what's going on. Like I saw very clearly the sequence and the structure of it. And it just, and then it made, meant so much more to me. And that was like unexpected, you know, like memorizing it would come and see, you know, it's one of those things. It's like the, the doing of it, the, of something unexpected is what actually enabled the understanding of it. You know, it's fascinating. That's fascinating. Maybe, maybe we should try to try to do, try to do that. Memorize, memorize mm-hmm. some poems, but uh, talk about Tom. This is the other guy. You had Ingrid talking about the informational approach. Now we've got Tom, and he he brings the theological approach. Uh, what do you mean by a theological approach to the scriptures? Yeah. So the the point of the informational, I'm sorry, of the uh, theological part is that you know we really need help when we read the Bible, and that God has given teachers to the church. You know that's like one of the key roles, and that's continuing. And we need teachers because there are people that are called and gifted and enabled to summarize and put together the various parts of the Bible and help us understand what it's saying. Um, You know, the Bible is not just a book. It's really a library. You know, it's a very rich library written over a long time with a lot of different kinds of books, a lot of different things being said. We believe that because God is the author behind it all, that there's a unity, that there are walls and a roof and a and a theme and themes that go throughout. But we still need we need help. Or think of it like an art gallery. You know, if you people may or may not know what a docent is, a docent is a person who knows the collection of an art gallery and knows something about the history of the art. So that when you go, um, if you have a docent take you through an art gallery, it's like in, infinitely more interesting because they can tell you, well, this, you know, this painting, if you look at this, this artist always does this with the person's hand or whatever, or this painting is actually a major contrast to the way this artist historically did it, or it's mm-hmm. a critique of this or whatever. So those are the kind of, we need people to help us. And the whole idea of theology is that from the earliest days of the church, what was called the regular fide or the rule of faith all the way down to your church's doctrinal statement. I mean, every church has some doctrinal statement and everything in between confessions, big things like the Apostles' Creed and the um, Nicene Creed and the symbol of Chalcedon. All these are ways that godly people have articulated aspects of what the Bible teaches so that we can grasp it more easily. You know, so that we're not, no matter what level we're at, we need help. So one of the most obvious examples is the Trinity. You know, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, yet that is absolutely central to Orthodox Christianity. So what exactly does it mean for God to be one God in three persons? Or is it three gods? Or is it one, you know, but the Orthodox way is one God in three persons. And what is the relationship of those persons to each other? Well, you can't just go to a Bible verse to figure that out. You need a lot of a lot of verses across both Testaments wrestling with it 
gifted, thoughtful people who are in dialogue with other people and have read what other people have said to then come up with the best way to think about what the Bible is teaching. So theology doesn't replace the Bible, but it also is a really, really important servant and frame and help for us to really be good Bible readers. And that's the idea um, of, of the theological kind of reading approach. That was a really helpful chapter. I mean, I, I even think about, I remember when I had first encountered like a Jehovah's Witness for the first time, sure. and then they know their verses and they've got, yeah. you know, a, they have a very regimented kind of way to argue for their points. And, you know, you, you can't, and they would, sometimes they would say, you, you find me the verse that says God is a Trinity, you know, or uh, you can even say, some people would even say, where, where's the verse that says Jesus, where Jesus says, I am God, you know, all these types of things. Um, and then that's what really, and this is, I credit, what was really helpful with seminary. I went to RTS Orlando. I know you've done mm -hmm. some adjunct yeah. work there. You go down there every other year and teach. Yeah. Them. Yeah. yeah. Great place. Yep. It was a great, uh, one of the things that they instilled was how the creeds, confessions, the tradition of the church is really the, you know, they, I think they call it the handmaiden to the scripture. Mm -hmm. it, it helps you understand and it gives you guardrails and it illuminates the scriptures in a way that's been time tested, you know? And uh, I think that that was helpful for me to be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And I like the idea of having tradition behind me. It kind of, you don't have to reinvent the wheel over and over again. Not that it's infallible, but that it is substantial. And helpful for us as we read scripture. Please don't reinvent the wheel when it comes to Christianity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> I mean, yeah. really, that's our problem. But as Protestants, here's the dilemma that you're putting your finger on. As Protestants, we really, you know, want to say always reforming. We're always returning mm -hmm. to the Bible, and that's what Christians before Protestants were saying too. I mean, it's not like they're the first person to say people to say that, but it it's it's a tension to live with. Like, how do you do that while also respecting and being guided by tradition? And you just have to be come to be okay with the kind of the paradox of that and the tension of it and live in that kind of slightly discomfortable, uncomfortable place because the alternatives on either side are a disaster. One is like tradition that basically supplants the Bible or the Bible that is complete, you know, reading the Bible in a way that is completely ignorant of and lone ranger separate from tradition. Yeah. I mean, that never ends well. Right. <laughs> and so right. Th this, it is a tension that you just have to kind of learn to live with. And that's what Tom's doing when he's behind the wheel is like, Hey, it's good. There's a lot of good here. We don't have to freak out and, and we can read the Bible in conjunction with the creeds and other parts of theology. It might be one of those things, just like you were saying, you 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 realize that when you're doing it, like I think on its face, you're like, is tradition going to be too shackling to me or me, my Bible, whatever. But if you actually read and try to study scripture along with the great writers and theologians of the past, it's it's almost something you can't explain. Here's how you perfectly do it. Here's how you perfectly manage mm -hmm. attention. I think it's you do it, you do it, That's and then you point. see how they work together. It's a good point. Um, yeah, yeah. I when I uh, when I was reading your book, and I, I'm sure that as people approach your book, depending on where they are, a particular approach is going to be mm -hmm. illuminating for them or really moving. Maybe because it's the one that they're the weakest at, or they don't exactly. think as much about. For me, I really found your transformational approach to be very helpful. And, 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 uh, I just, even some of the practices that you talk about, but so this is the third, this is Taylor. This is the, this is the climax. This is everything we've been waiting for. Taylor yeah, Swift herself. The this yeah, is the that's right. right. Yeah, exactly. So you're, you're on your road trip to her concert and she's in the car with you. 
And yeah. she's talking about the transformational approach to scripture. What, what can you talk about the transformational approach? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, there's so many ways to get at this. One is let's think about a really famous verse or two verses, second Timothy three, 16 and 17. Um, all scriptures God breathed. And we, you know, we often camp on that verse because it's one of the places that really speaks so clearly of the authority and inspiration, inerrancy, trustworthiness, power of the Bible. And that's great. And it's really good. But what we often don't realize is that that verse doesn't end there. And that's actually not the point of the verse, even though that's a f- true thing to draw out of that. Sure. You know, Second Timothy 3.16, the point of the verse, you have to keep reading. It's useful. It's beneficial for teaching, reproof, correction. I would say it's all really kind of summed up in the phrase Paul gives us there, training in righteousness. It's actually learning how to inhabit the world in God's ways. That's what righteousness means. You know, it means to to actually do what is right, <laughs> to do the will of God. That's not legalism, to do the will of God. That's what's required, you know, in the sense of not earning our favor, but to be a Christian, to be a disciple is to do the will of God by the power of the Spirit, imperfectly, but still to pursue a training in righteousness. And so the point is that no matter what we might understand about the information of the Bible, no matter what we might understand about the theology of the Bible and the tradition of how Christians have read it, if it does not end up actually changing us and affecting us, then we have not really read it well. And there's a million ways we could say this, but it's hard to beat Augustine here in his double love. I mean, one of the main ways and the argument Augustine makes is that because the first and second greatest commandments, according to Jesus himself, are to love God and love neighbor, at the end of the day, any reading the Bible that falls short of those transformative experiences is not really a reading of the Bible. I mean, it's a reading, but it's not really a true understanding. And so to fit it into the road trip analogy that we're using, um, again, informational and theological readings will get you a long ways, but the transformational, the, the personal transformation, the humbly reading it and prayerfully reading it and seeking to obey it, that's not just like an add-on to interpretation. That's not just like a an extra thing we can call application where the other two are really reading the Bible and then applying is this other thing. My point in this metaphor is that if you're not actually reading it to that end and pursuing that, it you aren't really reading it well. And that is probably the most uh, uncommon thing I'm saying in this book, uh, in the sense that a lot of times I think we do tend to think that the application is like a separate thing from interpretation. We even We even use this kind of metaphor or this acronym that's helpful, like observation, interpretation, application. And, and, you know, that's, it's not a bad acronym. I love acronyms, you know, but it's also good because there are some steps kind of to it. But the problem with that acronym, if you take it too far, is that again, interpretation becomes this thing that's separate from application, meaning like the meaning and then, oh, and then I also apply it. And, and you might say, and that's important to apply it, but I'm saying something a little different I, with this metaphor. I'm saying the application of the transformational reading is absolutely necessary. It's a tripod where you've taken one of the legs off if you don't read it transformationally. And so in that chapter, I talk about um, the role of the Holy Spirit in this, um, as well as um, what else? So I talk about that chapter. You've read it more recently than I have. I think that's the big, I talk about the goal of reading scripture yeah. and then the role of the Holy Spirit uh, in it. And so that's the idea of the transformational. 
Well, it's, it's when you talk about the spirit and the like a Christian reading of, I mean, the Christian reading of scripture is the reading of, of scripture and that there's something happening when you think about God addressing us through this medium that it's, I know, I know people talk about like speech acts and all these other things that, that words are doing things to us. And I guess it is, I think about this when you read commentaries by unbelievers who might have really great insight into literary structure and, and the history of the text and all these things. And yet they can never fully understand a text if it doesn't actually imprint upon them or call them to action or compel them to worship. You know, and I, and I think about that with when you talk about the Holy Spirit, where that's essential to discerning the spiritual things it's, it's essential to almost like i don't know if the word is completing the work of reading but mm-hmm. but in a sense it feels that way where like you're not done until it draws you to yeah righteousness it draws you toward worship and yeah that's really good I, I remember i don't know if you had this experience but i certainly did in seminary um like learning all this amazing stuff you know and i was a pretty young convert at the point i was probably like five or six years I'd only been a Christian five or six years when I was in mm. seminary, but it just was like blowing me away. You know, all this stuff about language and history and, you know, literature and all the stuff that I was learning. And I remember starting to think like, well, wait a minute, like how, and a lot of, and I went to Trinity in Chicago it was a great experience. Felt like I was really well-trained to think academically and to read the Bible carefully. And it's a great, great experience. And, but I remember starting to think like, Okay, a lot of these people I'm reading that have incredible insights into the history behind the Bible, it's the literary structure, they're not even believers, right? I and, <laughs> and I and I that was especially, you know, some schools wouldn't do that, which I think is probably a mistake not to, you know, you shouldn't just only read a certain tribe of people. Trinity was always very good about like just pursuing the best arguments, you know. And so whoever made them, but I remember thinking, okay, how does this work? You know, like, not like I was offended, like we shouldn't be reading non-Christians more like more at the level of like, how do they have so much insight if they're not even Christians, you know? And so I, it took a long time to kind of think about that, but I, I, I came to realize it's probably an imperfect way of thinking about the metaphor of it, but it's like, we need two different levels of knowing, like there's knowing at the level of like perceiving what the argument is, even authorial intent, whatever categories you want to use, literary structure. But there's another level of knowing that is this experiential and this personal. And it's, again, maybe that's not the best way to, like, metaf- to describe it in terms of a metaphor. Maybe there's something better than levels, but we need something like that to explain why you can understand things about the Bible without actually knowing God. You can't, that can happen. And you see it happening, not only in modern people reading the Bible, but you see it happening in Jesus' day. His main, the main people he's in conflict with are the Pharisees who are incredibly knowledgeable. They're knowledgeable about the whole Bible, about the traditions about the Bible, all the different interpretations of it. And they would do great on everything, but they've lost a heart connection to God. And that's what Jesus' main critique of them is. And he critiques them by saying things like, have you not read? Which... Of course, they have read, they've got it memorized, and yet they're not, for whatever, very, not all of them, but the certain people that he's in conflict with, they're not living it out. They're not being people of love and compassion and kindness. And so, in a sense, they haven't read, right? <laughs> so, they, they haven't really read or understood. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good way to, of putting it. And that that is true. The Pharisees, they knew the Bible inside and now. They knew the Old Testament, the laws, and all these types of things. But it's they weren't done 
that they, they, they had to go further and ultimately lead them to to Christ, which they which they rejected. Um, what are some ways that we can grow in this transformational reading? I mean, you talk about um, I think it was oh, Lectio, Lectio Divina. Divina. Yeah, yeah which an easy one. Yeah, you know, I know. Like, I remember reading that years ago, being like red red alert, like Catholic, <laughs> you know, Catholicism, you know. By which you mean most Christians throughout the church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but but when you explained it, I was like, this sounds just like Psalm one, just the man who made exactly, it on a low. Right. Right. Just, that's, that's, is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, if that? you want to get really meta, you could do Lectio Divina on Psalm 1 that talks about the importance of meditating. That's yeah, exactly. very meta. Um, but yeah, it just means a slow, meditative. It really goes back to what I was saying earlier, paying attention. Yeah. You know, paying attention not only to the text, but to your soul. You know, where you're really just kind of saying, what's going on in here? What, what, what is this? What ways in which I am to take Psalm 1? What are the ways in my life in which I am actually walking with sinners or standing with them or sitting in the seat of scoffers what you know what areas that i'm maybe not i don't want to pay attention to that i'm really doing that you know that's a good kind of reading um that's a transformational kind of reading it's not the only kind right it that's the point is you can read it informationally and think about literary structure you can read yeah. about theologically how psalm one relates to the beatitudes yeah but but you also can read it by saying gosh what is this how is this true in my life you know I'm not how is this true of somebody else's life, right? Which is always right, the temptation, yeah. right? Um, you well, know, I always joke, I always joke with my congregation. You know, I, I preach a lot and I always say, you know, if you if you're sitting there thinking about how somebody else needs to hear this sermon, that's a pretty good sign that this is a sermon for you. You know, like, oh, I'm gonna send this to my daughter, or I'm gonna send this to my friend. Like, okay, that's probably I mean, that's good. That's not all bad, but it probably means you gotta pay attention to something in your life too. Yeah. I can't remember where I heard this quote, but somebody said the Bible is is the inspired word of God perfectly suited for my neighbor's needs or something like that's that. That's awesome. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but so for Elective uh, Divina, uh, how would you walk through getting started on something like that? I mean, it sounds very mystical, very kind of, you know, ancient, but how would you break that down for just someone who's like, I want to grow in, in application or transformation, however you want to call it. I want to grow in that. What do yeah. I, I wake up tomorrow morning, I open my Bible. What do I do? Yeah, that's really good. Uh, good question. Yeah. I mean, there are things online and books about the practice of meditating upon scripture, not, not meditation of like emptying yourself, but actually sure. concentrating is what Christian meditation is. Um, but I don't think, I mean, those are great things to look up. I, I, I don't think we have to make it too complicated though. I think it really, again, just means slowing down. So just take a Psalm as a good way to start and you read it. Maybe read it out loud is a good thing to do. Use other parts of your body besides your mind. Read it out loud. I think it's good to get on your knees, you know, when you read the Bible, or at least beforehand, depending on if you're physically able. And to read it out loud and don't jump to another thing. Don't jump to another psalm, but read it out loud again. Read it slowly. Um, maybe for works for you, take some notes like in your Bible or like I'm just on a piece of paper or an iPad, like, um, and just begin to prayerfully read it. Mm. So like, just take a line and, and like, remember that you're in the presence of God and like, make that really conscious, like happy or flourishing or blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, et cetera. And then just say, again, like I was saying before, like, Lord reveal to me, 
what ways in which this really is true in my life? What what aspects of my life in which I am really being influenced and advised by people that maybe make me feel good or tell me I'm awesome or something, but they're really leading me in ways that aren't towards you. I, you know, that's just coming off the top of my head, just but that kind of thing, just to slow down and read Coram Deo, you know, read in the presence of God. I think that's something anybody can do. That's the beauty of it. It doesn't require education or, or certain skills. That, that last part that you, you mentioned Coram Deo, the Prince of God, I think that's, we, we often forget that most basic thing mm-hmm. that you're not just reading by yourself. You're reading in the Prince of God. God is interacting with you. He's speaking to you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I can see how slowing down can give you a greater awareness of that. And, and there probably is, <laughs> maybe that's the key to just begin is just to like slow mm-hmm. down and give the time that that it deserves um yeah bible reading programs are great but ironically you can read a ton of the bible and not ever really read it <laughs> you know what i mean like it's like i mean oh, i'm yeah. not saying I, i'm not saying i don't want people to bible reading programs i'm just saying if you're just doing it you know to check the boxes, which again, it's, it's, everything's complicated because there's a sense in which even that is good. Like just the yeah, fact that right, the boxes right, right. are there are really good for us. Cause it helps us like have a sense of like getting something done. And therefore we are taking in the Bible. So that's awesome. There's no dissing on that, but it's like on top of that, don't neglect like slowing down, you know, and uh, just meditating. And even thinking about your own life, like, you know, I, I can distinctly remember times when certain scriptures that I'd maybe even preached on or, you know, led a Bible study on or whatever. And then you go through difficulty and you read it and it like, yeah. it hits, you could have preached the same thing, but mm-hmm. it now you're like, this is for me. This is mm-hmm. about me. For sure. You Always. know, and, Always. Uh, well, you know, talking about that, you do mention the dangers of imbalance and you've kind of touched on this as you were talking to the other ones, but, um, where where can an imbalance happen in any of these three approaches with with informational theological transformational? Have you seen that in your in as you, in your own journey as you're reading scripture where there have been imbalances and you know or in the life of the church? I mean, like talk a little bit about imbalances when it comes to these approaches. Yeah, well, I think you know to keep it simple, I think the reality is that each of us probably have propensities to do one or two of these and not all three of them. That's kind of the point of the book is that we need all of them. And it's the reason we need, I need to say that and write the book is because most of us don't do all three of them well, but I think it varies quite a bit. I've actually kind of been in conversations when talking about the book of like, which, which ones do you think are the most common in the church today or something? And I think it varies radically. I think there are probably plenty of churches where they like are really heavy on the informational um, and maybe the informational and the transformational or the informational and the theological and not the transformational. Like I can imagine actually individuals by their own propensities. Like some people are just, I'm a history nut, you know, <laughs> whatever. And I just want to learn all about it. And and that's great, you know, or I love church history and I want to talk about theology all the time. Um, it, all those are great, but it's just to be in a, be aware that we probably do have weaknesses in our particular domination or our local church 
or our country even, or whatever it is, or our individual lives that we probably do one or two of these and neglect the other. And so this is just an invitation to come and see, to come and see and try, try all three out and, and make them part of your diet. So for me personally, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm in a weird place because I'm a professor. And so my whole life is this and I'm a pastor. So like I, my whole life is doing all of this. So um, certainly my training was informational, right? I mean, I have a, you know, Trinity was very academic and I have a PhD from British University. And so it was very uh, informational. The theological was something that was kind of happening in my life during those years of like coming to see the importance of theology in relationship to studying the Bible. And then I would say that over the years, the transformational has become clearer and clearer as really the apex. So, I mean, I, I don't want to like give a quantit a qualitative judgment between them because they're all necessary. That's the point of the metaphor of all three steps. But, you know, again, I think the transformational has become more clearly the goal for me. Um, as a pastor and as an individual. Um, so you just have to kind of evaluate yourself and say, which of these am I good at and which do I need growth in? And there's something for everyone in the book, you know, there's, there's all three chapters. So, yeah. Well, maybe we can, this would be a good place to, to kind of bring this to a head because you, you did mention you're, you're, you know, you're a professor and you're a pastor. Um, what are some ways that you have found to help people in your congregation grow in all of these approaches? Mm. Are there practices? Are there ways that you've seen that you've implemented that you've been like, mm. in, when you think about your congregation and maybe even your students too uh, mm. at seminary, but I'm, I'm just curious about that. Are there ways to help people grow in these three within the context of a church? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The thing that, First comes to mind, well, for, for preaching, there's two of us that preach our church and, you know, we really do try to model, um, you know, we don't use these categories per se sure. in our minds or something, but we try to model all of these, like we're, we're paying close attention to the text, um, like we're preaching through Luke right now, and we pay close attention to the story, we are, and then we're always asking, what does it say about God and what does this say about us? So there's a sense in which that is kind of like, if you think about it, that's, those are the three aspects of the journey The the theological is like, what do we learn about God here? And, and to answer that well, is going to require, or it's going to entail looking at other parts of the Bible and understanding, you know, historically what Christians have said about God. And then the, what is it, what is it saying to me in the sense of like, what is God calling to me to, what is he inviting me to, what, aspect of Jesus' yoke am I being invited to take on my neck in a good way? And so that's kind of the transformational reading. So in our preaching, we do that. Um, increasingly, one of the things at our church that I'm involved in is, so I run the men's ministry, and then I work closely with our women's director. And we have intentionally over the last year and a half or so coordinated the men's and women's ministries to parallel each other in almost everything we do. And that uh, has become, and it is becoming more officially like kind of where the most of the formation is happening in the church, not all of it, but a lot of it. And the, one of the core elements or the core element of that are men's and women's Bible studies. And the way we do them, I mean, a singular 
uh, the women meet at two different times, but it's a study, meaning the men and women were doing the exact same study, the exact same text, the same book, like we use my friend Jim Wilkins' first Peter study this time. And we're the same week, same format. And the format is that people have a study book. And so we spent 10 weeks in first Peter and each week people are encouraged to do it on their own. Like they're in answer questions, like five days out of the seven. Then we come together for the men at six 30 in the morning on Wednesdays. And I have a teaching and I have six other guys I'm developing as teachers. So I do two or three of them. And then I'm developing these other guys as teachers to develop them. And so we have a teacher teach for just 25 minutes and then 45 minutes of table time with the same group of people each week led by a you know table leader, but it's mostly just discussion. And so what's really turned out to be really powerful about that is that you've got this personal study, you've got good teaching from somebody who knows more than you do, and then you have discussion with others. And so that I'm not saying those are the three you know stages of the journey. What I'm saying is that kind of mode has been really powerful for people who are whether they're just beginning to read the Bible for the first time in their lives or just became a Christian, but not even a Christian, all the way up to people who've been doing it for a long time, that that tripod mode of individual study being taught and then discussing with others has proven to be just really powerful um, for people. So that's one thing we're trying to do to just kind of make the Bible central to what we're doing, but not in a kind of heavy handed way, but in a very like interactive way, communal and personal and being taught. So, so you, you're it's it's one uh, group of guys, and you're teaching that large group, mm-hmm. but you also cycle around with other guys who will teach yeah, well. So or- six thirty. So ten. This one was ten weeks. Six thirty to seven forty-five. It only is on start, stop, hard start and stop time. We really yeah. started right and really ended on time, and. Yeah. So we gather, they, people would have studied on their own. If they don't, they could still come, but they're still yeah. studying on your own. And then we have a teacher. There's six of us. I'm one of on the main one, but they each teach on that day. So all 80 guys are in the room, teach for 25 minutes, but everybody's sitting at their table that they've been assigned to from the first week. And then they, they're sitting at their table, teacher stops, people at the table then discuss questions. The teacher has to write that write discussion questions as part of his talk. And then they're at the table that they were sitting there for the teaching, discussing it. And then we end. Right. So it's like, it just, it's turned out to be just an incredibly beneficial mode of doing it because it hits all those things, individual being taught and then discussion. Appreciate you sharing all that. We'll put your uh, a link to your book, come and see, as well as your uh, sermon on the Mount uh, discussion uh, in, in your book and uh, appreciate you sharing this and coming on with us. Hey, thanks so much. It's been a real delight. 